This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. We would not have Marvel as we know it without Stanley. People say, oh, well, Batman's human. He has no superpowers, but he's got a butler. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? For some of us, Stan Lee is a household name, but there are some people listening, my mother, for instance, who will go, who? Well, Adrian McKinder has written Stan Lee, How Marvel Changed the World, to tell them, really. He joins us now from wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen on Skype. Adrian, thank you for joining us on Books Podcast. Thanks, Tim. Good to be here. So, who was Stan Lee? Who was Stanley? Well, Stanley was, in a nutshell, one of the most significant uh, creative slash marketing forces of 20th century mainstream entertainment, I would say. He was the man who uh, liked to tell the world that he was behind some of the most iconic superheroes and comic books uh, ever created, in a, um, first in America and now the world. Um, so we're talking... Uh, the Fantastic Four, we're talking Spider-Man, we're talking Incredible Hulk, we're talking Thor, we're talking the X-Men, Avengers, so on and so forth, uh, coming to a cinemaplex near you. <laughs> he's the man who started it all, or so he would like to tell you. Well, yeah, he, he, he said, I mean, your subtitle here is How Marvel Changed the World, and I, I, I was going to suggest that that subtitle was a trifle hyperbolic, but you're, you're more or less suggesting that it's not, that he was a, a force of nature Yes, I, I would say, yeah, it, it is It is a little eyebrow-raising because it does sound like you know, messianic <laughs> to a certain extent. But I think the, the, the upshot, uh, without giving away too much of the book itself, is that you know, he, ch the Marvel Universe is, that we now see populating our cinemas when, when we're not in lockdown um, is, the, is the most successful, highest-earning uh, movie franchise in the history of cinema. Um, and we would not have Marvel as we know it, without Stanley, full stop. So did he? Um, he so didn't. He didn't start Marvel Comics. He wasn't. He wasn't the the the, the man who who set it up. No, that was a man called Martin Goodman, who was actually a relative, a distant sort of in-law type relative of uh, of Stanley, and he set up back when it was called Timely Comics. Uh, uh, and when the, was this? We need to, we need to this, uh, be specific. The 30s. In time. Yeah. So we're talking the 30s. So, you know, uh, D Detective Comics DC, which is which they was the basically that was the comic book company of the time. It was known that they they are responsible for the what I call the holy trinity of superheroes, the the original 3 that still tower over everyone else. So DC had Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Uh, created in 38, 39, and 40, I think, for Wonder Woman. Um, and then Timely was one of the many sort of, you know, they were known for making, for basically publishing pulp titles uh, of uh, any kind of genre. Martin Goodman was a canny businessman. He didn't believe in creating anything unique. He believed in jumping on what was popular and just bashing it out. And he almost went on record saying it doesn't matter how good it is. The point is, it should be what people want to buy because they're already buying it. So Stan Lee, age before, no, he wasn't even 20, started working with his relative's firm at Timely. Now, he, he, he grew up in the uh, during the Depression. So he's gone to yes. work for Timely in... Is in, in the 30s when he's still basically a kid, isn't he? But he, he was nearly 40 
when when the magic started? It, did it just yes. take him that long to think of <laughs> of all the well, Marvel heroes? Well, I mean, it, 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 that's a very interesting part. I always think it's rather inspirational for people that are kind of toiling away in a certain profession to know that, you know, your big break can come when you're pushing middle age. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, he'd been there for 20 years. Obviously, the war sort of interrupted his uh, his his tenure. Um, and he'd grown, so he says, disillusioned with um, writing comics because he was, as I said, bashing out any old crap, if I may use that word, so <laughs> genre things. And as he saw it, and he, the story he gives is that he was very fed up. And then basically the people above him said, we need to create superheroes are back in, Stan. We need to come up with uh, something else, a new kind of superhero. Uh, the Justice League's doing really well over at DC. Maybe we can have a new kind of team up. And this is about 1961, isn't it? That we're yeah, talking? this yeah. is 61, exactly. And he, he went home, and this is his version of stories, and he said, I just don't want my heart's not in it. I want out. I don't like writing comic books. I think they're, they're trivial and juvenile. Um, and his wife, Joan, said to him, well, why don't you do something that you wanted to write? If you were going to leave... If you were going to quit, do what you want to do. And if Martin says, sorry, this isn't what I asked for, you're out, you've lost nothing. So he came up with, so he says, the Fantastic Four. Um, and then it was a hit. Uh, and then there was this extraordinary purple patch from 1961 to basically 1965 where all those tentpole marvel characters were created and all the characters that we're seeing on screen now all the 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 x-men's and the daredevils and the uh and, and the, the avengers all of them started yes. then exactly exactly even down to the fact that the avengers number one and uh, uh, x-men number one came out in the same month those two titles came out in a september i think um uh, it was, i can't remember which one of the five years it was in towards the back end like 63 or 64 but that's astonishing in itself so what was it that Stan Lee did? What was, what was revolutionary in his approach, <laughs> when approaching 40 as he was, that, that was, that was different from what DC had been doing with, uh, you know, Batman, the Flash and, and, and Superman? Sure. Um, what he did was he, he imbued these characters with what he called feet of clay in the so far as they were human first. Um, take the Fantastic Four to begin with. They were a squabbling family who had their superpowers thrust upon them in an accident whilst in space. This wasn't a case of, I'm Superman, I've just been born this way. Uh, Batman is slightly bit similar because it was the trauma of his parents being killed that led him to commit to a life of vigilante crime but fighting. But Batman had got very but, camp in the 50s. It was Exactly. He'd gone far away from, from Bob Kane and Bill Finger's kind of much more violent inception, I think. Um, and so, yeah, basically he... Um, he wanted these people to be flawed. He wanted these characters to be flawed and that's what it was. So they bickered and they fought, you know, there's one, there's one story arc early on where they face eviction from their home in the Baxter building in New York, you know, so there was, this was not superheroes as we knew it. I mean, they're much more relatable. I mean, you can't really relate to Superman because he's an alien with godlike powers. You can't relate to Batman. People say, Oh, well, Batman's human. He has no superpowers, but he's got a butler. <laughs> you know he, he doesn't live a relatable life he's a millionaire as it was back then that was enough and wonder woman is of course is an amazonian sort of deity on earth um so the and then spider-man is the archetypal one that i think is the paradigm for the marvel philosophy insofar as he is a school kid you know he would normally be a character reserved for the sidekick 
like Robin. He was a school kid who was a nerd. He wasn't popular. The opening page of the first Spider-Man story is him being teased. For and not, and not handsome either, not buff. No, not at all. And I think a lot of that goes down to the artwork and the creative input of Steve Ditko, who... Um, who basically uh, imbued the character with his own. Steve Ditko was a notorious uh, recluse. He only gave a handful of interviews in his entire life. He famously walked away from Marvel in the mid-60s and never returned. Um, and uh, he imbued this sense of outsider, this geekiness into Peter Parker. And I think that's what resonated. That's the story. And that wasn't just Stan. That was a collaborative approach with him and his other creations, namely Jack Kirby, who did basically all of them except Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And then uh, Doctor Strange and Spider-Man was Steve Ditko. Um, answer your question, what, what else Stan did that was unique was he created this hugely um, empathetic sense of community amongst the readers. He spoke at eye level. His, some of the comics were very meta. He broke the fourth wall. He often included some of the writers in the comic panels. And he had a thing called Stan Soapbox where he would talk to the audience, you know. So he, he brought the, the readers in as a, a community and tried to turn them into like a gang. Yeah, not, well, not more than a gang. It was an army. I mean, he has these wonderful pseudo-military phrases. His, person, his catchphrases, like he would start with, face front, true believer. You know, it's, Which it's, he used it's, a lot. It's, Repetition. He was brilliant at, wasn't he? In fact, he was brilliant at, at the, a very deft touch for all these these uh, ways of, of, of enhancing, well, his own profile, but, but the, the cohesion of, of, of Marvel Comics as a, as a phenomenon. Oh, absolutely. The, the idea of creating an integrated universe was a masterstroke. Apart from a cynical marketing financial perspective, it was great because you want, you had to buy other comics titles to find out what was going on in this big story arc. But then as we've seen, uh, they actually steered away from that in later years because someone pointed out, and this is a valid argument, you know, it's exhausting for a kid who wants to buy a few comics that he feels he has to read up on this whole backstory and all these other titles just to, just to spend his 10 cents. But it's paid off dividends. Yeah, but in the 60s, I happen. remember there were about a dozen titles. and I mean, since since then, they've exploded. I mean, Marvel only had about a dozen titles. I was a big comic reader as a boy. So, um, you know, right. this is, this is so uh, you know. my comfort zone. Yeah, but there were yeah, about yeah. a dozen titles. And if you didn't, you didn't need to read Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos if you didn't want to. The, the, the superhero ones could be six or eight a month, which is, I mean, it's a lot of comics yeah. to buy for a kid. But it wasn't an, an unmanageable universe. No, no, absolutely not. And that, and that existed in my time as a kid. I was a child of the of the nineties, and uh, I, I was that's when I was really into comics. And as you said, it was manageable. There was a lot of things where I, you know all the stuff that really broke the coffers at the Hollywood uh, now with the the Avengers Endgame and the Infinity Gauntlet story. That all came out when I was it really into comics. And I remember getting all the the crossover comics to tell that story. You know, and I got so excited about it, and it was manageable. It, it did, however, lead partly to the downfall of Marvel in the 90s when the company declared itself bankrupt. But that's a whole other story that I get into in the book. How um, far is the success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, all these movies, and the cohesion of them, how far is that a result of, of copying Stan's vision of Marvel from the 60s? I think in one sense it is completely due to that. Because no one was doing it in the same way. No one had created this interconnected. And I would say the key thing is an interconnected, relatable universe. Because another thing that DC didn't do 
is, is they didn't put them in a sense of a, re- a place. You know, Batman was in Gotham City. Superman was in Metropolis. They were fictional city. We all know they were both based on New York. Um, but, you know, these Marvel characters had addresses, you know. So you knew that Doctor Strange lived in Greenwich Village. You know, you knew that Captain America was from uh, Brooklyn and Spider-Man and was the from the X-Men Queen. were up in Westchester County. Hey, Westchester, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So he created this by using a, a tactile sense of geography that he knew because he was born because and Because he was a New Yorker. York. It was his stamping ground. It, absolutely, very much so. I mean, he was born in, uh, even though it wasn't a particularly affluent family, and it was a uh, first-generation immigrant family, he was, uh, he was born in Manhattan. And then they traveled around a lot. Uh, due to his father's uh, varying fortunes, uh, struggling in the Depression. But I think that tangible uh, interconnected universe is entirely down to the, the, what Stan did when he was editor, you see, because he became editor very quickly, uh, due to partly due to the war um, and partly due to probably a bit of nepotism. But he suddenly found himself, but he wasn't even 20 when he's found himself having to edit, edit the comics, you know, which is quite astonishing. There are other things that brought him uh, to prominence early. We're going to have to talk about Jack Kirby a little bit. I adored Jack yes, Kirby when we, I was a kid. Um, and, rightly so. Um, Kirby was the other half of of the the uh, force that that made Marvel work. He, he he was the artist. He used to draw the pictures, and he he was yes. what Marvel comics looked like. Now. He was older than Stan. He was already established, and um, he was he was working for um, Timely when when uh, Stan turned up, more or less as the office boy. He was bringing him coffee, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. He was basically just the little gopher, and he would say that he was. He basically likened him to just an annoyance that used to sit around playing an ocarina in the office, which just wound them up because they were they couldn't be more different as well. Because you know Kirby was a stocky, gruff, cigar chomping a very sort of, you know, taciturn, uh, monosyllabic guy who who didn't really uh, suffer fools or guff <laughs> much. And Stan was full of guff. And, uh, and Kirby didn't have the together. social skills, didn't he? He didn't have the self-promotion skills that, that, um, that Stan Lee did. Now, you no. tell a story about how... Um, it was uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby were a team. Yes. And they'd invented uh, Captain America, uh, you know, back in the uh, 40s. Yes. Um they they left timely and the question is did stanley rat them out tell us the story and and tell me what your opinion is it's an interesting story because basically yes they were moonlighting for uh for other other comics and um and to the extent that they had like rented like a hotel room and they would disappear at lunch to do it to go away and work on these other titles um and one day stan Kept, according to Jack, was pestering them to go, what are you guys doing? Can I tag along? And they let him tag along. And then suspiciously close to this happening, they were suddenly confronted by the Timely team saying, we know what you're doing. You guys are out. It was seen as like a betrayal to Martin Goodman and his little family business. And to this day, well, to the day he died, Jack Kirby was convinced that it was Stan Lee ratted them out. What do you um, think? You, It's... It, I th- I think it wouldn't surprise me, but we'll never know. I know that sounds like a cop out, but I do think that it gets very murky as I cover a lot in the book. When you start talking about who did what to who, who created which character, there's a lot of he said, she said. Yeah. Uh, Simon is much more diplomatic about it because he says that we don't know, and let's be honest, you know, it was such a small company, and everyone knew everyone in the comic book industry at that time. It was highly unlike. It was like the worst kept secret 
that they were doing it. So they probably got a little lazy and it was only a matter of time before they were found out. So Joe Simon and Jack Kirby were fired. Yes. Uh, Ker- Kirby was sure that Stan had, had been the agents of this. Why yeah. then did Jack Kirby go back to work for Marvel and for Stan uh, at Stan's invitation? Exactly. And that's a very curious thing. Uh, and I think the truth is clouded by the fact that Jack Kirby himself was a little loose with the truth in later years when talking about the inception and his involvement in in creating the Marvel Universe and also his relationship with Stan. Um, I think there may have been a financial a drive for Kirby to actually come back because it was steady work and uh, and he was treated and revered highly. He was the king, you know, he was the king of comics. So I think that might have been, it may have been nothing more complicated than financial expediency. Um, the one thing that I find very interesting is they clearly had a rapport, a professional rapport, despite what Jack's much more bullish. And, you know, he said that he, at, at his most uh, extravagant, he would say that Stan, he never saw Stan write a single thing. I did yes. everything. I created. He says in, in one interview, he says, I created them all. I came in and they were literally tearing out the desks and I saw Stan in his office crying. And I was basically like, like he was sort of, you know, Sir John Harvey Jones troubleshooting <laughs> to come in and fix the struggling timely. Um, but I, to work, that closely together in that kind of creative environment uh, that's that collaborative because of the Marvel method, which we can talk about if you want, but I mean, we that's need all to part talk of about the Marvel, Marvel method because it, it does challenge this, uh, this question of how, how much Stan was, was, uh, was writing the, the, the books. Mm. Um, so uh, briefly, quickly, can you do the Marvel method? The Marvel method is very simple insofar as um, it's uh, the writer, would come up with an idea maybe and bash it around with the, with the artist. The artist would go away and write and, and create the panels uh, maybe. And it would even involve actually outlining a story um, put to the page. And then the writer in this case, Stan would go back in and fill in the balloons, the dialogue balloons with the dialogue. So it'd be fine tuning, maybe story. What it does is it's a very, very, very back and forth creative approach that completely blurs the line for creative ownership. So you do not have a line drawn in the sand as to knowing where the artist's work ended um, and the writer's work began. And uh, if anything, you'd think that the Marvel method probably uh, gives the artist more freedom because they're just sent away with an idea and then they create a comic out of it. And then Stan could have fine-tuned the words into his admittedly talented ability to 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 create, you know, zinging, you know, sass-filled dialogue with memorable lines. So the artist, I think, probably gets a little more credit than or doesn't get enough credit in general for the Marvel method. I interviewed several people who have worked with the Marvel method uh, in writing the book, and uh, there seemed to be an equal amount who liked it and who didn't like it, which I thought was very interesting. Stan was always ready to take as much of the credit as was going, wasn't he? He he he, he will agree that that uh, that Kirby was the co-creator of the Fantastic Four and the Hulk, and that uh, Ditko, Steve Ditko, was the co-creator of Spider-Man and, and Doctor Strange. But he was he was very happy to be the face of of Marvel and to to and to be credited with their invention. Very much so. What well, I think the thing about Stan is is there is no doubt of his input in what he did. Um, and he, as a marketeer, he was a genius. That's where his true talent lies, I think, in promotion, self-promotion or promotion of the brand. Um, but what he tended to do was not correct people 
when they gave him a little bit too much credit. So there would be uh, <laughs> there would be articles and interviews when Marvel started to become a thing, where it would say Stanley, creator of Marvel Comics, and he wouldn't correct them. Um, you know, it, it, he would be very enthusiastic about his praise for Kirby, and he loved the fact he did say, "Look, it was great that I could give Jack just a line, and he would go away and create this wonderful world." And he got more diplomatic and more magnanimous um, about sharing the credit as he got older. I think because he realised he couldn't get away with it much longer because uh, there have been several artists who'd complained about basically Marvel stitching them and up. Also and also, things would... were going really well for him. I mean, he, he, he it was a sort of a, a seamless rise that he had. Very much so. It was it was very much so. It was meteoric, as I said, in this purple patch of five years in the 60s. I mean, and he, you know, when he became sort of editor-in-chief and what have you, he stopped actually writing directly. The Marvel machine was very much underway in terms of the Marvel method was working. They got in some superb talent, um, you know, like Roy Thomas, who became his, his protege, who was the first editor-in-chief after Stan. So the second ever editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, uh, Jim Steranko, another brilliant artist who did some very interesting artwork, very unique approach. But, um, yeah, I think that, you know, Kirby and Kirby and Lee always had this, this, uh, they were like the Lennon and McCartney. It's a horrible hackneyed cliche yeah. but that, of, of Marvel, of Marvel, but it's true of Marvel Comics. What they did was gold, you know, the creation they did, and they just hit a role, whether or not, you know, whether or not Kirby did it all, and then Stan just tweaked a few lines, well, we will never Stan know. Stan was doing the dialogue, no which which he did have yes. a talent for. You you always knew with Stan's dialogue which character it was. You couldn't mistake the thing for Spider-Man. They spoke completely differently. So that's good. But how good an actual writer was Stan Lee? Um, was he just a good scripter? I think he was very good at mining, uh, mining other worlds for inspiring ideas. I think he talks about the in his own biography, which should be taken with a pinch of salt. But he talks about how he was influenced at a young age by all the literary works that just completely sparked ideas in his head, from you know reading, uh, you know things like you know Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer to, you know to and then the Hardy Boys and all these kind of things to, to reading Poe and then reading even Shakespeare. He was very, very quick, quick to point himself out that he was very, very well read child. Um, as a, as a writer, I think he's, I think he's a very, very good writer because I think what he's able to do is connect. And I think that, you know, he creates characters and, and issues um, and raises issues that people, people connect with it. I mean, that success as a, that wouldn't have come unless he had this flair to do things um you know he never he wanted to write the great american novel he always said he wanted to write that like all aspiring writers american writers and he was he felt frustrated he never did but i think his contribution is rather significant to american culture so he needn't sweat it that much i think he's a very good writer um i think the fact that he was very good as you pointed out quite rightly for um distinguished creating the voices in your head by the language used so you say you know you knew when ben Grimm was talking you could tell it was the thing you know with his dialogue and you could tell when it was spider-man and also the silver surfer later on who um who's your favorite my, character yeah my favorite character absolutely i i, I might have been just because i was a pretentious teenager and i really liked the philosophical posturing i i liked the fact the silver surfer would basically just hover around the earth going what are you people doing yeah. You know, but I, I kind of liked the cod Shakespearean soliloquies and his philosophical musings on things. I wonder whether if I'd came to him now, I'd be 
I might find him a tad pretentious. <laughs> but I enjoyed the flourish that Stan gave, you know, Norrin Rad. I, I liked it, and he was my favourite Marvel. A tie with Spider-Man, though, because I think Spider-Man is kind of the pinnacle. He's he's like the, the, the Ur comedy Marvel character, isn't he? He's the He he's, is. Yeah. He, he encapsulates everything that worked for Marvel. And I think it was it's very interesting to see it f- sort of on the big screen. Because that's also what I wanted to do with the book. There are other biographies about Stanley, and I didn't want to write a biography. I wanted to basically do a celebration of American twentieth century entertainment because Stanley had been active through most of it. You know? So it was interesting to draw the parallels, the various attempts that marvel had to try and you know get things on the radio get things on tv failing and then getting things in the cinema and then stan's effort in the digital space and online which was ahead of its time really he was quite a you know right on the the the, the dawn of the new millennium it was quite advanced for a man of his oh, age he, to be leaving. he had an amazing work ethic presumably from yeah. growing up in the depression he never stopped he was 96 when he died and we're mm. going to finish up with a, just um, a word or two about uh, his movie career because of course he appeared in uh, a couple of dozen films Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you know, it, not just his own films, but he popped up in 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 strange cameos, like he's in Kevin Smith's Mallrats playing himself or whatever. And he'll, you know, before he became Stan the Brand, you know, which came with the, the post, I would say, two thousand and eight, when the Marvel Universe really started to kick off and uh, start to start to work after a few falling, you know, stumbling blocks. Um, and, and I think that was testament to exactly what he was very good at. He had become a brand by this point, you know, in his, fi- in his final years. And people were excited to see the Stan Lee cameo. He must it's have like, been you know, absolutely thrilled to, to, for, with, to you know, appear in those cameos in all those superhero films. And it would be one scene, maybe one line he'd get. And everybody would go, yeah, Stan, thank you, we've seen him. Yeah, absolutely. And when he died, I think it's the beginning of Captain Marvel, there's always this Marvel sting where you'd see the different characters floating within the letters of the word Marvel. And it was all Stan's cameos because he just died. And it just said a thanks, Stan, at the end of it. And if you couldn't help be touched by that if you, weren't, if you were a Marvel fan. Well, because we, it was I, like, you know. we might all say thanks, Stan, mightn't we? If, if we liked the comics and if we liked the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Absolutely. I like Stan. And I can see why a lot of people don't. I can see why a lot of people who uh, thought he gave, you know, he sort of stepped on other creatives. But I like his gift of the gab. I think a lot of people could have benefited from a fraction of his showbiz sparkle and his charisma. I think that was his legacy. That he was able to just become the, the face of an entire cultural movement. And that's impressive. <laughs> Stan Lee, How Marvel Changed the World by Adrian McKinder is published by Pen and Sword White Owl in print. £19.99 in Britain and £29.99 in America. Um, Adrian, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I I, had a wonderful time. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's always good to talk about (laughs) our boyhood obsessions. (laughs) Exactly. Arrested development. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you very much. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>